Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again, everybody. This is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. This week we are celebrating the holiday of Hanukkah. I don't know if you can actually call it a holiday. It is a post-biblical celebration. According to the Bible, the major holidays, of course, are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the three festival holidays, Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot. And uh, several holidays have been added over the years because of historical events. And of course, several fast days have also been added because of not so happy historical events. The two uh, happy occasions that were added post-biblically are Hanukkah, which uh, occurs now in the middle of the winter. It's an eight-day holiday. Again, I hesitate to use the word holiday because one tends to think the word holiday associated with those that are ordained by the Bible. But for lack of a better word, it's a Jewish uh, day, a holiday, I guess, and uh, it is celebrated for eight days Purim, which is also post-biblical, is only celebrated for one day, a month before the holiday of Passover. Now, what's happened is that Hanukkah comes out at the same time of the year as the New Year and uh, Christmas. So there's been a lot of competition to make the holiday more meaningful for Jews, especially for Jewish kids. When I was a kid, for example, uh, we got some presents on Hanukkah, and it was sort of customary for our parents or our grandparents or our uncles to give us a few coins for the holiday. It was no major thing. But because it comes out at the same time as the Yuletide season in the United States, people have been trying to raise, if you will, the matter in which Hanukkah is celebrated, more or less to uh, compete, if you will. I don't know if compete is the proper word, but the idea is if you live in a Christian society, like I was raised in the United States, and you saw all the uh, Christmas trees, and uh, you saw all the lights on the lawns, and you saw all the holiday merchandise in the department stores, and you saw kids standing in line to tell Santa Claus what they wanted. So the idea over the years was to raise the Jewish awareness of Hanukkah in a sense, I don't know if the proper word is competition, but to give the Jewish kids a feeling that they were celebrating something at the same time that the general society was celebrating something which was happy. It involved presents and uh, and trees and all kinds of things like that. What's happened now 
has really uh, taken a whole uh, change in the merchandise market in the United States. It has exploded. Today, there are pillows and window decals and menorahs, uh, the candelabra in the shape of lions and whales, uh, even a $5 and under impulse buyer section in some stores is now filled with seasonal products and they have Hanukkah goods, including Star of David shaped bowls and sets of dishes labeled sour cream and applesauce. Uh, by the way, that's interesting because the, uh, the thing that the, the Jewish delicacy that's associated with Hanukkah is what we call latkes, pancakes, and uh, of course, you uh, you want to have sour cream on them. You want to have applesauce. Here in Israel, they the uh, the holiday uh, food, if you will, is uh, donuts. Very rich donuts. I never saw them in the states when I was a kid. We ate uh, latkes. We ate pancakes. But you don't hardly ever see them here in Israel. But in America, it's a big deal. And you eat them with sour cream and applesauce, and that are selling sets of dishes in some of the big stores labeled sour cream and applesauce. So Hanukkah celebration has been raised alongside uh, the others that are showcasing Christmas the same time of the year. Across the United States today, Big box stores appear to be stocking more Hanukkah products than ever before. And uh, they might be that the American real retailers have decked their shelves with the candelabra, with menorahs, tableware, and other items that are appropriate, affordable, and some are, might even be tasteful. So for many... Many American Jews, the result is a sense of inclusion at a time of unease. Although some are wrestling what it means to have access to a fast fashion form of uh, Judaica, it, the, it's, I guess it's exciting to go into a Target store or Walmart and see Hanukkah merchandise displayed very, displayed very prominently. And what's happened, according to some of the so-called experts, the feeling is almost like pride and like we're being seen and represented. Because there's a sea of Christmas and New Year's, so to many Jews it gives them a good feeling, even if it's a much smaller representation, that the Jewish holiday is there also, and the Jewish community is being acknowledged and representative. Now, the idea that retailers have stocked up on Hanukkah goods to make Jews feel represented is tempting, but it's probably not the only reason for this shift in the market. An expert uh, in marketing at New York University says that while an end cap and now, what's an end cap? That's a small set of shelves at the end of an aisle. An end cap might sometimes be given over for symbolic purposes. The devotion of an entire aisle at the busiest time of the year is purely a business decision. 
These stores are very sophisticated in what they put in them. These stores want to make money, and they're not going to put stuff on their shelves at the holidays if they don't think they're going to sell. <coughs> now, <coughs> there are signs that the Hanukkah market might be much wider than the proportion of Americans who identifies as Jewish. The number of people who identify as Jewish is about 25 to 3% of the American population. A respected consumer trends polling firm called Numerator found in a survey of 11,000 11, consumers conducted in January of, of this year that 14% of respondents said they were definitely or probably celebrating Hanukkah this year. Now, the, in the non-Jewish world, the United States, 96% of the population is celebrating Christmas. That doesn't mean they're particularly religious, but it's a holiday. More than half of the Hanukkah celebrants in this survey said they expected to spend more than $50 on the holiday. Now, this suggests that the retailers can expect hundreds of millions of dollars in Hanukkah spending this year, right now. Part of the marketplace is the growing number of families in which Hanukkah is celebrated at all, along with our holidays like Christmas. Now, it's interesting. It, it's a sad comment, but it's true. Most American Jews who have married in the last decade have done so to people who are not Jewish. This is according to a 20 Pew study of American Jews. Most of them say they're raising their children exclusively or partly as Jews. By the way, that, that's a, a story unto itself. To, to raise, raise to, uh, partly as Jews is a totally meaningless thing. I remember when I was a kid, there were families, uh, intermarried families, that had both uh, Hanukkah candelabra and Christmas trees, which means that they were, they were essentially celebrating something that was American. It, it has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity and nothing to do with Judaism. It's like an American holiday. It happens to come out at a time of the year when there is Christmas and Hanukkah. There's no real depth or meaning to it. So uh, these people who are raising their children exclusively or partly as Jews say they want to have products that allow Hanukkah to share the stage equitably with other celebrations in the family. Also, evangelical Christians and Messianics and those who adopt Jewish practices while believing in Christianity also represent an emerging market for Jewish ritual objects. So there's a market growing in the United States for Jewish objects. Uh, another uh, theory to explain the uptick of interest in Hanukkah products is the fact that social media and Zoom meetings have made home lives more transparent than ever. 
What's happening now, more people, because of Zoom, are sharing their lives and uh, they're telling people all about themselves, which I find, by the way, almost embarrassing. I myself don't engage in this. There are people on Zoom who are told all about their personal lives and take so now they're taking pictures, for example, of recipes. Uh, they make latkes and pancakes and things of that nature. Whatever the reason, shoppers are noticing uh, that Jewish influencers, are the uh, observers of Jewish consumer trends, have offered tours of Hanukkah merchandise on social media, all kinds of things. The uh, there uh, there are items in colored blue and white, or have Hebrew writing on them, and uh, these are being passed off as being made for the holiday. Now the videos are being shown by these people; they've been viewed hundreds of thousands of times, and so it's given a broad view of what's available to the Hanukkah consumer. So. Uh, there, there's creativity in the market, and in fact, I sort of find it uh, humorous. Target, the, the Target stores, has almost 2,000 locations across the United States, and they offer the widest array of products and lowest proportion of what they call fails, or products that miss the mark religiously, culturally, or aesthetically. According to the management of Target, Target is committed to creating an inclusive guest experience which all guests feel representative. They note that Target's Hanukkah assortment was developed in collaboration with Jewish team members and input from Jewish employees as a resource group. So uh, they have things like plates and pillows as a golden menorah shaped like a dove and pillow designs and all kinds of things. Now, it, Hanukkah goods have always been widely available through Jewish merchandisers and at synagogue bazaars, but those products have been available only to people already engaged in Jewish communities. Now what you have is Amazon and other online retailers have increased their access so for people who are hunting for Hanukkah supplies. To, uh, the, a lot of Jews who have no robust holiday traditions will be exposed to Target's retailing. So it's a whole new world now. Hanukkah merchandise and home decorations for Hanukkah, and even jewelry, that's the newest thing, and there's a lot of money involved, and the retailers know this. Now, by the way, not everyone is thrilled by this shift in the marketplace. The, uh, the sweeping uh, Hanukkah displays are drawing criticism for those who have long lamented that the American primacy of Christmas has caused Jews to focus too much on Hanukkah, which is really what we call a minor holiday. It has, for example, none of the restrictions of the biblical holidays. The uh, What's happening now among many Jews 
that they're celebrating what's considered a minor holiday, and they're leaving the holidays with more religious significance are, are not being celebrated. So, for example, uh, some, somebody remarked to imagine seeing a large Passover display. You would see one in a very Jewish neighborhood, but you wouldn't see it in a mixed neighborhood. So, uh, this fast fashion aspect of the big box retailer offerings, many of which are imported from China, uh, also raise concerns about whether easy access to trendy Judaica comes at, at cultural cost. The, uh, it's interesting. There is a mass market Hanukkah merchandise today did not exist when I was a, when I was a kid, the uh, the different there is a lot of different kinds of Hanukkah merchandise, and uh, people are going to celebrate with friends. So uh, it's interesting that you, you know I, I myself have mixed emotions. Obviously, I want more people to celebrate uh, Hanukkah, but if uh, it, I remember years ago, by the way, that. Uh, there were some people who lived in Christian neighborhoods where you saw Christmas trees on the lawns. They put their Hanukkah candelabra outside on the porch uh, where it could be seen, so like to show that we too have a holiday. It's very interesting, by the way, uh, I've been speaking about the merchandising aspect of Hanukkah and, its fact, and the fact that it's worth millions of dollars to American retailers. Here in Israel, of course, Hanukkah is is a uh, a big holiday. Jews, even those who are not observing other things, keep Hanukkah because it's nice. It's especially nice for the kids and you give presents and uh, things of that nature. Many people in Israel, uh, it's very common that they light their Hanukkah candles outside. They have special display cases that are designed so they can be set up outside the house on the porch, for example, or at a gateway leading into the house. And here in Jerusalem, uh, I find it quite enjoyable. I take a walk on this in the afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, taking a walk in Jerusalem, particularly in the uh, more orthodox neighborhoods, but in all the neighborhoods, you see Hanukkah, you see candelabra with the Hanukkah candles lit, and it's really very nice. By the way, there's something very interesting. <coughs> I live uh, not far from the central YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, here in uh, Jerusalem. It's about a five-minute walk from where I live. They have a huge, huge Christmas tree, and believe it or not, the city of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem is making Christmas trees available to the Christian community as a service to the Christian community here in, in Jerusalem. The municipality itself is making trees available. I believe that it's at no cost or at a very reasonable uh, uh, cost uh, to uh, so that the Christians here 
in Jerusalem will feel at home, uh, which is a story unto itself because, you know, right near Jerusalem is Bethlehem, which uh, now is under the hands of the Palestinian Authority, and it's creating problems for the Christians. Uh, I'll say something about more in the second part of the program. At any rate, Hanukkah, a minor holiday, is now a big merchandising deal in the United States. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, this is a particularly sensitive time here in Jerusalem because uh, after the Six-Day War uh, and after they uh, made the agreements in the early 1990s, uh, two things happened that have a, a, a effect on Israeli sovereignty. After the Six-Day War, the uh, Israel's defense minister, Moshe Dayan, hand over essentially the keys to the Temple Mount to the Waqf, W-A-K-F, which is the Muslim Religious Authority which is really controlled by the Jordanian government. So in other words, the Jordanian government got control of the Temple Mount, the most holy place in Judaism. And there's been a lot of conflict since then, and it's very difficult for Jews to go visit the Temple Mount. And that's a story unto itself. Uh, it is a point of contention between Israel and, in particular, between the Jordanian government. Now, the other uh, situation is that, the, according to the agreements in the early 1990s, the city of Bethlehem was turned over to the Palestinian Authority. And at that time, the city of Bethlehem, the inhabitants were primarily Christians, a very important Christian holy place. Over the years, because of pressure from the, uh, for, from the uh, Palestinian authorities, Christians have left Bethlehem, and now it is a majority Muslim area. Now, According uh, to news reports, and I mentioned this last week, the Kingdom of Jordan and the Palestinian Authority have been taking measures to stave off, I'm using their words, to stave off any attempt by the incoming right-wing government in Israel to change the status quo at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Now, the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque compound is a Islamic nationalist nomenclature for the Temple Mount compound. And since it was handed over to the Jordanians, they've done away, they've dug up and destroyed thousands of artifacts showing a distorted uh, Jewish historical antiquity on the Temple Mount. They, they've taken truckloads of artifacts and dumped them 
uh, into a valley near Jerusalem, and there were Jewish uh, authorities who had been working at sifting through the rubble there to find a Jewish uh, things of Jewish interest. And every now and then, they find something of extreme uh, uh, historical interest to the Jewish people. So heaven knows how much has been destroyed. Now, Jordan and the Palestinian Authority are reportedly stepping up their efforts in the international arena to warn of the dangers of any attempt to unilaterally alter the status quo at the holy site and to reaffirm George's role as custodian of not only the Islamic holy sites, but also the Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. So this is an initiative by the Palestinian Authority and by the Jordanian government aims to send a message to the incoming Israeli government, which hasn't been seated yet, uh, what, about their feelings. The, the incoming government includes right-wing religious Zionist factions, and so the Jordanian and the Palestinians are determined to thwart any attempt to divide the holy site in time and in space between Muslims and Jews. Now, Jordan and the Palestinian Authority have in recent years attacked Israel for allowing Jews to tour, to tour the Temple Mount, the, and Jews, Jews go there, they're limited, they go there quietly. I have been there several times, and you are accompanied by uh, guards, by uh, Muslim guards, and they watch you to make sure that you don't do any praying, which is really, when you think about it, the situation is really ridiculous. Jews are allowed on the Temple Mount under Muslim guards who keep an eye on them to make sure they don't pray. And uh, they, the uh, Jordanian authorities and the Palestinian authorities have described Jewish-Israeli visits as stormings and violent incursions into Al-Aqsa Mosque and this Judaization of Jerusalem and the Muslim holy sites. In other words, they look upon a few Jews mumbling prayers as violent incursions. Now, this is really, really very galling. Anybody says unilaterally, brazenly, and violently change the status on the Temple Mount over the past 30 years, it is the radical Palestinian and Islamics who have turned the Mount into a base of hostile operations against Israel instead of protecting it as a zone of prayer and peace, is what it should be. Israel, on the other hand, has acted with tremendous restraint, uh, too much restraint, in the face of all these Arabs' assault. The WAK, W-A-K-F, which is the Islamic Trust, and the Islamic movement prov provocateurs 
have attacked Jewish visitors to the mound. They have attacked Jewish worshippers at the Western Wall. The Temple Mount is above the Western Wall. On occasion, they throw garbage down on the Jews praying. And uh, they've attacked uh, even uh, uh, people from the Emirates and from Bahrain who pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque because their country signed uh, agreements, the Abraham Accords, peace agreements with Israel. So they've, uh, they've attacked Muslims from those countries. They've greatly restricted visitation rights to the Holy Mount for all non-Muslims and hijacked the pulpits and the mosque on the Mount to preach hatred and violence against Israel and against uh, Jews. The former Chief Justice of the uh, Palestinian Authority's religious court, a sheikh named Tasir al-Tamimi, has declared that the Palestinian Authority's Islamic belief and political position is that Jews should not only be prohibited from praying on the mount, but at the western wall of the Temple Mount too, since the wall is part of what he calls the Blessed Al-Aqsa Mosque, not part of any alleged ancient Jewish temples, according to him. And this, this kind of talk from a religious leader legitimizes Arab violence. The Waqf, the uh, Islamic Trust, has also conducted vast illegal construction projects on the Temple Mount, and beneath it also, they have been destroying centuries of Jewish archaeological treasures. As a matter of fact, this includes the digging out in an unsupervised manner of an area called Solomon's Stables underneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and the eastern area called the Chulte Gate Passageway in the southeast part of the Temple Mount. For example, 400 trucks full of archaeologically rich rubble were unceremoniously dumped by them into the Kidron Valley. Thousands of artifacts from the Temple period have been found in this rubble. People volunteered to go there and to help search through the rubble, and I've done so myself a couple of years ago. The, the huge pile of rubber, rubble and the people in charge, they uh, give you a box, and they pile some rubble into it, and they ask you to go through it looking for Jewish artifacts, which is a very slow and tedious work. The uh, walk has also turned Byzantine structures on the Temple Mount, like something called the Gates of Mercy building, into Muslim prayer halls without coordination with Israel. Now, the, uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, continues to make a broad-scale campaign against the authenticity of Israel historic rights in Jerusalem. For example, in September 2015, he talked about filthy Jewish feet 
They were desecrating holy Islamic and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. It's very interesting. Uh, The Muslim authorities there are not too crazy about uh, Christian sites either, but they, they, they essentially say that they are protecting the Christian sites because that makes it sound... That, that the only ones who were really doing anything bad is the Jews. And they, the uh, Muslims, are, protect, are protecting what's important to the Christians. And uh, the Mahmoud uh, the, um, Abbas said that, and I quote, Al-Aqsa is ours and so is the Church of the Old Sepulchre. The Jews have no right to desecrate them with their filthy feet. We won't allow the Jews to do so, and we will do whatever we can to defend Jerusalem. So he's pretending also to uh, be defending Christian sites. Now, now what's happening is that there are gullible and not-so-gullible Western progressive who listen to this, it's a big lie, and they talk about Israel's unprovoked and unacceptable actions on the Temple Mount. They talk about Israel using excessive force and violations of the status quo. Now, it's true that even well-meaning Western spokespeople, like State Department spokespeople from the United States, have fallen victim to this big lie with all kind of mumbo-jumbo about the need for all sides to de-escalate and respect the sanctity and status quo of holy sites in Jerusalem. That's interesting because the American State Department spoke and said all sides have to de-escalate. Now, what, what kind of de-escalation uh, does uh, Israel have to do? And what do you mean by this? the uh, holy sites? What are the sanctity of holy sites? What are they talking about? There's only one side that purposely has escalated the violence in Jerusalem and defiantly defiled the Temple Mount over the past 25 years. And it is not the Jews. It is the Palestinian Authority. The uh, what they've done is they turned Al-Aqsa Mosque and the entire mountain plaza into sort of an extraterritorial headquarters for the propagation of big lies about Israel. In fact, Palestinian violence and Islamic exclusivism have become the new Temple Mount status quo. Now. Obviously, it is not in Israel's interest to protect this new status quo, which is entirely in favor of the Arabs. The, uh, for example, to give you an example of the way in which the uh, the Waqf, the Islamic Trust, as a monkey with the so-called status quo, consider visitation rights to the Temple Mount. Until the end of September 2000, 22 years ago, any non-Muslim ascending the Temple Mount could pay 36 Israeli shekels and enter what they called the shrines. That means the Dome of the Rock, 
and Al-Aqsa. The shrines, in, in this sense, are mainly Muslim shrines. So that was what the, uh, the rule was. You pay 36 shekel, you can go visit. Now this ended when Palestinians launched their second intifada assault on Israel back in 2000. The Israeli police halted non-Muslim Assen due to security concerns. In other words, Israeli peace are trying to cut down the possibility of trouble. So how do they do it? They cut down the number of Jews. They limit the number of Jews who are allowed to enter the holiest site in Judaism. Now, that was in 2000. And in 2003, the WAC requested that non-Muslims be allowed to come up again. Well, the, the caveat the Jews would not be allowed to enter the shrines at all. Jews could not enter the uh, the uh, Dome of Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israel responded that only a situation of status quo ante would be acceptable, meaning that all non-Muslims, including Jews, would be able to pay the visitation fee and get in. But the WAC refused and preferred to shut down the shrines to non-Muslims altogether. The only way to get in to see the uh, Muslim holy place today is to bribe a, an official of the WAC. The, the, according to one estimate, the WAC has lost over a billion shekels in potential revenues over the past 20 years, which is apparently fine from their perspective as long as Jews are locked down. Also, the WAC has unilaterally changed visitation rules for the Temple Mount Plaza. They bar most forms of conspicuous religious garb or nationalist education aids. That means no Jew can wear a skullcap. No crosses can be seen on Christians, even jewelry. No reconstruction drawings of what the temple looked like. And of course, no Bibles, Old or New Testaments. Occasionally, the walk guards will even assault guides and archaeologists that speak about the temples. In other words, mentioning the temples on the Temple Mount is a no-no to the Muslims. The WAF has allowed ISIS, Hamas, the Islamic movement, and Turkish flags, of all things, to fly on the Temple Mountain violation of all understandings. And they have all kind of, even put up banners and called to annihilate the Jewish people. The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan under King Abdullah has been engaged in what they call mission creep, a campaign to falsely embellish his privileges at holy sites in Jerusalem. Amman, Jordan, now claims custodian rights of all Muslim and Christian holy places in Jerusalem, a claim that was invented out of thin air. Israel has never recognized Jordanian custodianship over holy sites. The, the, there is an agreement, an Israeli-Jordan peace agreement, 1994, and Article 9, Paragraph 2 says, the present special rule 
of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan and the Muslim holy shrines in, Jews, in Jerusalem. So Jordan's special role in the Muslim holy shrines in Jerusalem is far from custodianship, which suggests semi-sovereignty over the Muslim holy shrines in Jerusalem, nor has Israel recognized any Jordanian special role regarding Christian sites in Jerusalem. So, <coughs> the Jordanians are not keeping their agreement. So Jordan is a deep default on her commitment for freedom of religion on the Temple Mount. And the governments of Israel have gone mute in the face of slanders at the heart of the Muslim narrative. Our government leaders are continually like to keep things quiet and restore calm after every wave of Palestinian violence, and, they, and it's simply not right. Israel has to act against these things. The law and the agreements are on our sides. There should be a new diplomatic initiative to solidify Israel's rights on the Temple Mount. And so hopefully the new government might do something about it. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Thanks again for listening. Now that the smoke has cleared after the election and uh, a new government is being formed and will probably take office this week, uh, I want to say a few words about the interesting rise of the uh, National Religious Party, Religious Zionism Party, which is known as the RZP from its initials. Now, data from the election show two population groups that stood out in their contribution to the more than doubling of the religious Zionism party from six seats in the 2020 election to 14 seats, more than double. It went from a percentage of votes of 5.1% of all the votes, and now it got 10.4%. In other words, the National Religious Party, in its present form, doubled the votes that it received from 2021 to today. And that's something which is of interest, and I want to say a few words about it. The... the who are the people who vote for the National Religious Party? Well, first, the first group consists of voters in religious Zionist towns and settlements and even in kibbutzim. Now, that's one source. That these are places which are traditionally religious, various kibbutzim, for example. That's one source. The second source of the party's rise was large cities that traditionally voted overwhelmingly for Likud, for Netanyahu's party, and this time they didn't. This includes especially mixed cities that suffered from rioting during the Operation Guardian of Wolves last May. Some cities that experienced rioting went from more than doubling their seats for the National Religious Party. Some even quadrupled them. I'll give an example of the city of Lud, not far from the airport, 
went from 4% to almost 16%. Beersheba from like 6% to almost 16%. Ramla, right near, again near the airport, went from about 4% to almost 13%. So what happened was that cities that traditionally voted for Likud and for Netanyahu, the ones that did not experience rioting but still registered significant leaps, some more than tripled their support for the National Religious Party. Interesting, in a large number of those cities, the numbers who chose to vote Likud also rose, in some cases significantly. So the support for the National Religious Party came from either people who did not vote in the previous election or those who voted for other parties. So the, the National Religious Party, called the, we call it the RZP, Religious Zionist Party, also picked a large number of secular center-left uh, votes uh, and and uh, in other words, the religious party picked up votes from people who were not religious. You see this in all the towns, and you notice from all the uh, all the results. So, how do you interpret this data? It, the rise of the national religious party, even among non or not actively religious voters. One way to interpret this data. Uh, without real research, mainstream religious Zionists voted for Betzalo Smutrich, the head of the party, despite the fact that on his list was Itamar Ben-Gvir's presence. Itamar Ben-Gvir is known to be a radical. Whether he's so radical now that he's mature, we don't know yet. But Vitalo Smutrich of the National Religious Party and Itamar Ben-Gvir were on the same list. When you voted, you got both of them, plus some other names. So by getting these two people, what does it all mean? Now, I believe it turns out that peoples in the cities where they had these riots, people in the cities where they had the riots, they voted for Ben-Gvir, despite the fact that Smotrich was on the list. So it's very funny, this list, which more than doubled in size, the people who voted for it, some voted for because Smotrich was on it, despite the fact that Ben-Gvir was on the list, and some voted for Ben-Gvir, despite the fact that Smotrich was on the list. <coughs> So that's one of the crazy things about Israeli politics, that you can't vote for an individual. You have to uh, vote for a list. And sometimes you don't like some people on the list. And the truth of the matter is, in most cases, not even sure who's on the list. Each list uh, could be up to 120 names. And, uh, and the research, uh, the unofficial research that I've done you ask people, can you name 10 people on the list they voted for? And the answer is generally no. You vote for a list, you're stuck with it. So in the case of the National Religious Party, people voted on the list. The, the, the two prominent names on the list were Smotrich and Ben-Gvir. 
And some people voted for Smotrich despite Ben Gvir on the list, and some people voted for Ben Gvir despite Smotrich on the list. So that's one of the crazy things about Israeli politics. The Smotrich, obviously, and not Ben Gvir, was the magnet for mainstream religious Zionist voters. Uh, the this faction who voted for him are mostly middle class Ashkenazi religious Zionists, and and so forth. The uh, the other the Otsma Yehudit list, which is Ben Gvir, served as the magnet for mid to lower class voters in Likud cities who have very little uh, interest in anything else other than being safe and sound. And this is what Ben Gavir promised. So uh, so th that's, it's very fascinating how these things work in Israeli, uh, in, in Israeli politics. So that explains the source of the religious Zionist party huge leap, despite the fact that perhaps half the voters didn't like the list. And the, and the other half didn't like the other half the list, and they got all those votes. So that, that's part of the crazy thing about Israeli politics, that you can't vote for the person you like. You have to have a whole list, and you take this whole list, and, uh, and you're stuck with it, and that's what they do. Now... Uh, since I was talking about the votes, I want to say a few things about wasted votes. Uh, Israel has, you vote for a party, you don't vote for an individual, and they make up ahead of time what percentage of votes you have to get of the total amount in order to get into Knesset. The electoral threshold today is 3.25%. Now, I don't know if that's reasonable or not. In the vast majority of democracies that have to, that kind of system, you have to get two to five percent of the vote. In America, you know, the, the place where I grew up, you voted for an individual, and the one who got the most votes in your district, he's the one who's elected. Even if, for example, uh, President Lincoln actually was a minority president, and several people ran against him back in 1860. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think he got 40% of the vote, but that was enough to win. <clears throat> so when the threshold is higher, there's a great danger that votes will go to waste, and it happens. The, uh, the list that come up short of the threshold find themselves outside the Knesset. But this is not predetermined. Whether parties clear the threshold or not, depends on their use of their political intelligence. For example, in recent elections, the electoral threshold had a knockout effect. Two lists that were represented in the previous message came very close, but they fell short. These two uh, <coughs> parties were Meretz and Balad. Balad is an Arab party. Now, both belong to the anti-Netanyahu bloc, and uh, many votes were wasted. Around 300,000 votes went down the drain. The result was 
that although the accounts for the two plots were almost identical, the Netanyahu camp will have a clear majority in the upcoming Knesset of 64 seats out of 120. That's considered a clear majority. However, we must bear in mind that the electoral threshold is an intrinsic feature of the proportional representation system. Even if the threshold is not defined by the law, in practice it derives from the number of seats in the parliament in Israel. <coughs> in Israel, you have 120 seats, <coughs> so that's like 0.83%. Uh, this was happened in the first general election back in 1949. List that came close but didn't clear the hurdle uh, missed by only a few hundred votes. Now, of course, one can debate the appropriate value for the electoral threshold. In Israel, it was raised to 1% in advance of the election in 1951. It went to 1.5% before the 1902 elections, to 2% ahead of the elections in 20, 2006, and the current value of 3.25%. In other words, if a party doesn't get 3.25% of the total votes cast, it does not get a seat in the Knesset. So from a comparative perspective, the electoral threshold in Israel is reasonable because uh, that's the way it is. It's this, these are the facts of life. Any uh, percentage higher or lower than 3.5% uh, uh, has advantage and disadvantage. Too high a threshold is likely to eliminate the re representation of small minority sectors one that's too low encourages extreme political fragmentation, which has an adverse effect on Parliament's performance and stability and contributes to social disintegration. I personally <coughs> think that the country should be divided up into electoral places, blocks, and you people run in that area. The way it is in Israel now, you vote for a party, you vote for 120, it's really a bargain, you get 120 names for your, your single vote. So, ultimately, as long as the electoral threshold is set at a reasonable level and it's known in advance, all the political bodies, as well as the voting public, will be aware of it and conduct themselves accordingly. For example, by forming joint lists. Like, the, as I mentioned at the beginning, the National Religious Party list is really two lists. It's a list headed by Smotrich, and it's a list headed by Ben Gvir. They knew that were it to run separately, they either wouldn't get into the Knesset or they'd get a small amount of seats. So they put their list together into one big list, and they got uh, 15 seats. Parties, parties that cannot adapt to the reality of an electoral threshold have to pay the price. And this happened, for example, at something called the New Right back in 2019 and for Merits and Balad this year. 
This holds for any electoral threshold. Uh, the elections last uh, month, uh, back in April two, uh, 2019, showed the electoral threshold's value has also determined the outcome of Israel elections in the past. By the way, the best known example was back in 1992, when the threshold had just been raised from 1.5%. The right-wing Hatikva party fell short. It only got 1.2% of the votes. This made it possible for Yitzhak Rabin and the Labour Party to form a government. This was followed by the Oslo Accords, and history, Israel's history took a different path. This happened back in 1980, when the threshold was 1%. In other words, I personally think the, the idea of a threshold just really makes no sense. I, as I said before, I believe you should vote for somebody who represents you locally. You have to vote for a list. That's the way it is in Israel. Now, it is true that a higher threshold increases the danger of wasted votes. Lists that gain a substantial number of votes may still not make it into the Knesset. It just happened that way also. However, it doesn't have to be that way. And the outcome depends on the party's use of their political intelligence. And as I said, two parties got together and they got in on one list. The By the way, this year, the percentage of wasted votes reached an all-time high. 8.7% of the votes were wasted. In the two preceding elections, uh, it was not, not so many were wasted. During the 1990s, for example, when the threshold was much lower, there were a substantial number of wasted votes all the same. So in the final analysis, hard to predict the effect of tinkering with the electoral threshold. As long as you're going to have to vote for a list and not for an individual, there's going to be a threshold. Moreover, this is not what we should focus on. Therefore, there are far more important changes that should be made to the Israeli system, starting with the basic law. Legislation is needed to establish constitutional principles and rules of government to the devolution of power from central to local government. Israel, the parties rule, and the heads of the parties are the people who rule because they're the ones who choose the list. And the truth of the matter is that a modification of the electoral system which strengthen the link between the public and those who are represented. It, it would make the people who run for office more accountable to the population and not to the party heads. The, uh, there should be a regional component and an individual component in the electoral system. The very fact that you, could, you have to vote for a list and take everybody on that list is, I think, a bad system. And the really perfect example was this election, because when you speak to people in the street and you ask about the National Religious Party, 
or what they call the religious Zionist party, it's the same thing. They asked people why they voted for it or why they didn't vote for it. They, they named two individuals. If you like Smotrich, and even if you didn't like Ben Gvir, you voted. If you like Ben Gvir and you didn't like Smotrich, you still voted for the party. So what you end up doing is getting a real bargain. You get people you don't like together with people you like, plus the list of names of people you don't even know who they are. And this, I think, is a basic problem with the Israeli system, that you don't really vote for an individual, and worse, you don't have someone who represents you as you are an individual. When I lived in the United States, I knew who my congressman was. I went to his office when I needed something that required a congressman's help. Here in Israel, you vote for a list of 120 names, and you have nobody to turn to for your own individual problems. And I think that is the basic uh, defect in the Israeli system. And there is no doubt that it has to be changed. The problem is that the politicians don't want to change it because they like it the way it is, because they appear on lists where people who don't even like are on the same list, and the voters have to vote, who want to vote for you, have to also vote for the people that you don't like, and you would rather not even see on your own list. So that's like the major drawback in the Israeli system. I think the system really is no good, but it's the one we're stuck with for the moment. And so I tried to review all these things now. Uh, again, I'll be back after the break. Jay Shapiro signing off. Jay. Jay. Yeah. I'm going out. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to uh, close the program this week with a number of items that are under the radar, but I think that they're, they're important, and I think that uh, the listeners should know about them. The first one uh, is uh, something that I found out from a friend of mine who was who the last Nazi hunter. His name is Ephraim Zuroff, and uh, he has an office not far away from where I live. And after the Second World War, for a period of time, there was a lot of, a lot of people searching out Nazis and bringing them to trial. Turns out now that uh, Dr. Ephraim Zurov is the only one left, but he's still working hard at it. And uh, he told me to look up an item in the paper, something he was a little bit involved in. I found it, and I want to share it with the listeners. A 97-year-old German woman has been convicted of complicity in the murders of 10,505 people during the Holocaust. This is reported by the BBC. It turned out this woman, her name is Irmgard Fuchner, between 1943 and 1945, she was a young girl then, 18 years old. She worked as a typist at the Stutthof concentration camp where an estimated 65,000 people were killed during the Second World War. She was sentenced to a two-year suspended jail sentence last Tuesday 
marking the end of her trial, which began in 2021. She's the first woman in decades to have been tried and convicted of, uh, of Nazi-era crimes, and due to her age at the time of her actions, she was just 18 years old, she was actually tried as a juvenile. She's now 97. She, uh, interesting, the, uh, her trial was supposed to begin several years ago, but she tried to escape, but she was caught, and, and uh, her trial was rescheduled. And uh, during her trial, the court heard testimonies of survivors of the Stutthof camp, which is located near the current day Gdansk in Poland. She has been called, her name is Fuchner, she's been called the Secretary of Evil by media covering the trial. And she was uh, interesting. Her, her husband gave testimony in 1954. He was aware that people were being gassed to death at the camp where she was the secretary. The, uh, by the way, at this trial of this 98-year-old woman, she only said made one statement. She said, I regret that I was in Stuttgart for the time. That's all I can say. So that this could possibly be the last trial of a Nazi war criminal. And uh, it's interesting, all these years, my friend, uh, 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 Dr. Ephraim Zurov, he's, as I said, he's the last of the Nazi hunters. And his, his attitude is just quite honest. He's, look, the fact that somebody's 98 years old doesn't blot out the fact that she was involved many, many years ago, 80 years ago, in the death of innocent people, and you still have to pay. There is no, um, there is no uh, time period, a limit on people who have done these terrible things. <coughs> that <coughs> the, uh, they, they had she, this woman tried to get acquitted because of rage and so forth. The uh, this uh, camp that was she, she was secretary Stutthof was originally used to imprison Polish leaders and resistance members. Uh, the camp was originally intended to serve as a civilian internment camp, but by January 1942 it was no longer different to any of the different than any other Nazi concentration camp and it had a gas chamber. Back in 1944, the camp was drafted into the Nazi effort to do what they called the final solution, get rid of all the Jews. And they had the capacity to execute 150 people in gas chambers every hour. It's estimated that 63,000 prisoners died in the camp through murder, starvation, epidemics, extreme labor conditions, brutality, and forced evacuation, a lack of medical attention. So about 25,000 people, these were estimated to be Jews. And these are the kind of thing that time should not change the guilt of the guilty. <clears throat> and so this woman, 98 years old, has been found guilty of being involved in a crime 80 years ago, but she richly deserves it. The only years passing, 
Do not erase these crimes. And something doesn't get the headlines in the paper, but I wanted the uh, the listeners to be aware of it because I, it's an injustice has no deadline. I wanted to, that's a point I wanted to make. Now I want to change the topic. We'll talk a bit about the uh, what's happening now in Israel in terms of politics. Uh, this week, the new government is uh, going to be sworn in. At the time I'm making this uh, program, it hasn't been sworn in yet, but it will probably be sworn in in a couple of days. The uh, It's interesting that in the U.S., it was a strong shift to the left when the Democrats uh, won the presidency in both houses of Congress in 2020, but now it turns out that the uh, Democrats are going to lose the House and there'll be a split government. So while right and left may have very different meanings in, in the Israeli context compared to other countries like Latin America or Western Europe or the United States, Israeli politics has also been volatile. Israel just completed a month ago its last, its fifth election in a couple of years. So, uh, interestingly enough, the uh, this last election had the highest voter, voter turnout since 2015. So it's interesting. The guy who's going to be the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been called everything from an exemplary statesman to a criminal. And he's going to lead this new right-wing coalition. By the way, I, uh, he may well indeed be a criminal, that could be, but he still is an exemplary statesman, I think. So uh, there, uh, it, the, uh, the, it, there's a growing phenomenon in the U.S. that accounts for the most terrorist incidents in the U.S. since 1994. And... Uh, the, now, that's the situation in the States. Now, we have a new government coming into office here in Israel, and fortunately or unfortunately, Israel is the limelight for both being Jewish and being Jewish democracy, as defined in our own Declaration of Independence. Israel is in the limelight for being Jewish because Jews have been the timeless scapegoat, as evidence in recent years. There's now a three-day test of anti-Semitism adopted by American states, and there are countless other entities, but anti-Israel comments are too often anti-Semitism in disguise rather than legitimate criticism of Israel or Israeli policy. People don't like Jews, so they hide their anti-Semitism in statements against the Israeli government. But a lot of these statements are basically anti-Semitism, but uh, they people covered up by saying that they uh, just take issue with the policies of the Israeli government. Now, Israel is undoubtedly in the limelight for being a Jewish democracy because Western political theories says that state and religion must remain separate. Emerging out of the Enlightenment and the French-American revolutions, the concept of the separation of church and state has been dominant in Western political ideology 
And while Israeli founders and much of Israel society likely understand Jewish to refer to Jewish peoplehood rather than the more restrictive definition of Judaism as a religion, to outsiders, Israel's success creates dissonance with our belief in the separation of church and state. So there are advocacy organizations uh, and even U.S. Uh, government officials, they, to them, the high turnout in the recent Israeli elections has been praised. And desire, the, a lot of American politicians have uh, expressed a desire to work together on shared interests and, 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 uh, and values. Simultaneously, the fear of possible fundamental shifts to Israeli society largely read by, led by far-right religious leaders, uh, or, or people are worried about that because the, the upcoming coalition is going to uh, include religious parties uh, together with the Likud, which is essentially a secular party. But uh, the, uh, our prime minister, upcoming prime minister Netanyahu, has nailed together a coalition of his own party, the Likud, with a number of religious parties. Now, one of religious parties, the National Religious Party, is essentially a right-wing party in terms of politics. The other religious parties are, are don't really, they can be left or right. They, the main purpose they have for joining the government is get their hands on budgets uh, to pay for their institutions. So the, the uh, so-called religious parties, they can go either left or right, depending on uh, who's willing to give them this something to satisfy the needs of their voters. But broadly speaking, we have to ask ourselves, will, uh, will Netanyahu lead a coalition, or will the coalition be leading him? Uh, on behalf of Israel, what will Netanyahu need to concede in exchange for his get-out-of-jail-free card? There, there are several cases now in the courts against Netanyahu, and uh, he wants to change a lot of rules to save himself from going to prison. The uh, What will be affected won't be affected by this new government. That's the point I want to share with the listeners. What about the two-state solution? Chances are it'll likely be unaffected because recent polls show that less than 40% of Palestinians and less than 40% of Jewish Israelis are in favor of a two-state solution. The uh, one important issue on the table, however, is a, uh, a deportation law, a proposed deportation law by a right-wing member of Knesset named Ben Gavir, who says he wants to deport anyone who acts against the state of Israel or against the uh, Israeli army. Question is, if indeed this law is passed, to whom will it apply, and who will have the authority to enforce the law? Now, even if the law doesn't pass, turns out that Ben Gavir is being named public security minister. Now, what types of violence and or lethal force will be tolerated 
to keep the coalition together? At what point will the Jewish belief in the preservation of human life triumph, triumph over ideologically about the land? Now, also as a question of uh, safeguarding the LGBT and so forth rights, it's unclear how, how the coalition leaders truly feel and what compromises will make them be made to keep them in power. Now, the, uh, it's interesting, Ben Gvir, who once uh, described sexual minorities as abomination, more recently said in his campaign, and I quote, the homosexuals are my brothers and the lesbians are my sisters. So now that he's in power, he's sort of, he's, uh, he's got away from his rad previous radical positions. Uh, apparently, he's become more informed and more educated. And, of course, you can say, well, perhaps this is uh, just political rhetoric so that once in power, he can attack uh, the anti-gay conversion therapy. Well, who knows? Also, we have to answer ourselves, what laws will Netanyahu try to change primarily to keep himself out of jail? Can, is, can Netanyahu keep Israel as a space safe and a continued example for the rest of the world? Uh, the opposite, will the opposition band together on, with, Netan, with Netanyahu on specific issues? The, uh, the, the, uh, it's interesting. The religious leadership, the religious parties are pretty much to the right. So, uh, whether the question is what this is really probably at least in the years that I've been in Israel, the government coming into uh, power is one that nobody is really sure how it is going to uh, uh, act. The, uh, the the a lot of the people who are now in in the government are people who made kind of pretty wild statements when they were running, and. Uh, the the it's interesting because the 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 combination now of the Likud and the religious parties is something new in Israeli history. Generally, the parties have been centrist with some left or some right uh, parties involved, but now you have the Likud and the religious parties, and this is altogether something new in Israel. The uh, the uh, question is, has Netanyahu's leadership fallen into self-preservation for him? Or he, or has he, Netanyahu, risen to the challenge to create a more integrated and engaged Israeli society? Rather than watching Israel further fragment into secular and religious extremes, will Netanyahu be able to lead with principles and bridge these communities. If you look back at uh, not not too uh, far history, back in 2005, uh, Ariel Sharon, Sharon was a right-wing, almost a radical right-wing leader, but when he got into office and he did the unexpected and he led Israel's unilateral withdrawal from Gaza, and that's his legacy. 
a right winger who went central or even left. Question is, what will Netanyahu do? It's hard to know. It's hard to know, but it's very interesting times. The last thing I want to talk about today, since we are in the midst of the Hanukkah uh, holiday, is uh, they're always digging in Israel and finding all kind of interesting things. It turned out that they found just recently a rare half-shekel coin from the so-called Great Revolt that took place between 66 and 70 of the common area during the Second Temple period, and it was discovered in Jerusalem in excavations near the Temple Mount. They found a wooden box containing 15 silver coins that serve as proof of the Hanukkah story. And uh, the, uh, the, on the Temple Mount, there's a place called the Ophel, or the Citadel. It's the still extant Herodian uh, Temple Mount bordered to the south by a ridge known as the Southeastern Hill that stretches down to the King's Garden and the Lower Shalom Pool. Two kings of Judah, Yotam and Manasseh, described in the second book of Chronicles as having massively strengthened the fortifications here, and later they were reused, uh, and Dave, King David, of course, has associated this. So over the years, dozens of Jewish coins were found for the period of Great Revolt, most of them made of bronze. They found a silver coin and a half shekel. These, these digs, by the way, are carried out by Hebrew University, together with um, a called, college called Armstrong College in Oklahoma. And they do all this dig, uh, digging. So according to the research, half-shekel coins, an average weight of seven grams, were used to pay the half-shekel tax to the temple. And now we've found these things. The further proof of the history of the Jewish people here in the Holy Land. So, happy Hanukkah to everybody. And if you're not Jewish and you're celebrating something else, happy holiday to you too. And everybody should be well and healthy. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do... 
partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.